This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I am so excited to have Kara Collier. She's a registered dietitian and nutritionist and certified nutrition support clinician with a background in clinical nutrition, nutrition technology, and entrepreneurship. After becoming frustrated with the traditional healthcare system, something everyone that follows me understands <laughs> I did as well, she helped start the company NutriSense, where she is now the director of nutrition. Kara is the leading authority on the use of continuous glucose monitoring, CGMs, technology, particularly in non-diabetics for the purposes of health optimization, disease prevention, and reversing metabolic dysfunction. Kara oversees the health team and product development and has personally interpreted thousands of complex glucose data sets. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I saw you on multiple people's podcasts and I kept thinking there's something to this. And as I, you know, dove down this rabbit hole, it really occurred to me that CGMs are not just for diabetics and obviously, you know, I'm from a traditional Western medicine training, but also have functional training. And the more that people understand how our food influences our blood sugar, the more they will understand it's not just people walking around saying carbs are bad, or you can never have dessert or a glass of wine. But when you can see that information in real time, it can reinforce or discourage people from continuing to make the same choices. So I know that you started in clinical nutrition. So what was it about? And I know we probably are very aligned on this. What was it about the traditional kind of Western medicine mindset about food and nutrition that really started to cause you to second guess what you were doing, the environment that you worked in? Yeah. And there's certainly multiple components to it. Uh, you know, we could have a whole podcast on this topic, but I'll try to keep it brief. Part of the frustration was, you know, in a hospital setting, in a clinical setting, it's, you know, get them out as fast as possible, put a bandaid on it, add a medication, whatever treatment we need to do so we can get you out, which is good. You know, we don't want people in the hospital longer than they need to be, but then there's a disconnect with communication and follow-up to provide the appropriate care that person needs to not come back to the hospital. So what I'm sure you saw is you see these frequent flyers. People are just in and out of the hospital all the time because we're never ever addressing the root cause, you know, which is often lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And that's just really not touched on. And so it's frustrating because you see all this suffering and this unnecessary amount of procedures and medications and pain that people are going through when really we could have prevented all of that or at least minimized it by talking about lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other frustrating component is when you finally do get to have that lifestyle conversation, some of the traditional recommendations are not actually that helpful. So I'm a registered dietitian. I also was trained traditionally. And some of the recommendations, which maybe are meant well, maybe are not, you know, who knows what's going on behind closed doors, but they didn't necessarily help people. So mm -hmm. standard recommendations to eat, you know, 45 to 65% of calories from carbohydrates, have small frequent meals. These recommendations were not moving the needle. Mm -hmm. Once you have chronic conditions, multiple chronic conditions, you have to make even more extreme measures to address it and to fix it. And these just weren't cutting it. So I was frustrated with the lack of conversations around nutrition and addressing the root cause. And then I was also frustrated with the nutrition recommendations I was taught that I could see were not working when I did have someone who was finally like motivated and excited to address the root causes of their problem. Then it was like, well, they lost their excitement because they're not seeing any progress or improvement. So from that, I was like, well, we have to start somewhere else. And so really dug into the research about like what is driving all of these problems. And it all points to metabolic health and insulin resistance. You know, they're all connected. That's why most people don't just have one chronic condition. Eventually they get multiple because it's all connected. 
And really at the heart of that is glucose. You know, there's other metrics involved, but I like to think of glucose as sort of like the 80, 20 best bang for your buck when it comes to metabolic health, because it's easy to measure and it tells us a lot. So it's not just telling us how many carbohydrates you're eating, which of course increases or decreases glucose levels, but it's also impacted by sleep and stress and exercise and fasting when you're eating the circadian rhythm, all of these factors that are so important for holistic health, glucose plays a role in that. So when we look at people's glucose levels, we get such a good view of what's going on and maybe where the problem areas really are that we need to dive into. And I think you made a really good point that it is personalized too. Mm -hmm. Some people thrive on a higher carbohydrate diet and that's great. And a lot of people don't. And so we have to know What's your unique situation, you know, your combination of genetics and epigenetics and the life you've lived that far, you know, where are you at right now and what's best for your body? We don't know that unless we're measuring some sort of data to tell us where to go. There is not one size fits all, you know, approach or diet. And I'm sure that you agree with that as well. And that's why I think data is also really helpful because it can make something very personalized, which is also more motivating for the customer or the patient, because they know this is how my body responds. And I'm much more driven to stick with that plan or stick with that goal I set, because I know how meaningful it is. It's not just like a generic thing. Somebody told me that I'm like, maybe it's working. Maybe it's not, you know, cause you can see the data. And I think that's such an important point, that objectivity, because it's one thing if we as clinicians are making recommendations and then someone has to go home and implement changes that we've suggested, but if they on their own are able to look at the information and say, oh, okay, I clearly overdid it with the, you know, insert whatever it is, Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. holidays. I mean, we're probably not doing as much celebrating in 2020, or if we're doing it, we're doing it in the privacy of our own homes, but having that ability to reflect on the choices that we've made and say, okay, I need to ratchet things in because my CGM data, again, continuous glucose monitoring is not where it should be. So let's define normal so that people understand like what objectively are we looking for? What do we ideally want to see for a fasting glucose? So when I think about fasting, I think usually a lot longer than eight hours, but I used Mm -hmm. to tell my patients eight hours is a good reasonable, but probably closer to 12. So if we're looking at a fasting glucose level, what would you ideally like to see? Yeah. So in a fasted state, yeah, technically defined as at least eight hours Mm -hmm. without food. We want to see that between 70 and 90 with a caveat that some non-diabetics who are perfectly healthy, especially somebody on a ketogenic diet or a very low carb diet, they might actually have a fasting glucose less than 70. And if you have no symptoms, so no like dizziness, lightheadedness, Mm -hmm. that's perfectly fine. But traditional recommendations would say anything below a hundred is okay. Mm -hmm. But there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that that buffer zone of 90 to a hundred is an independent risk factor. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of a yellow flag in my mind of not prediabetes technically, but things are maybe starting to go awry. And fasted glucose values could be temporarily increased. So we also, that's why CGM is helpful because we're not just looking at this one snapshot in time, like annually at your fasted glucose level, we get to see every day, every morning, what does it look like? Because sometimes if you get a bad night of sleep, that number is going to be way high. Or if you're super stressed because, you know, something's going on, or if you're sick, if you have COVID Mm -hmm. or if you have flu or something. So we're looking at, you know, given the circumstance, but if you're, no, you're not sleeping every day and you're stressed every day and it's perpetually elevated, that's obviously more of a chronic problem we need to address. But technically like 70 to 90 is the sweet spot I'm looking for in a fasted glucose. And it's interesting. I'm laughing because one of my doodles is starting to bark. So hopefully he's going to be quiet. And I know that (laughs) some of the study research I've looked at has indicated that if you get less than six hours a night of sleep, and I know there are plenty of you listening that probably do that and think it's no big deal. You reduce your ability to control your blood sugar by anywhere from 50 to 60%. And I actually had Dr. Kirk Parsley on a few weeks ago, and he was saying that on average, if you get less than eight hours a night of sleep over the course of a year, that can actually influence your weight gain by, I think you said 14.3 pounds, which 
for anyone that's listening, I don't want to be 14.3 pounds heavier this time next year. So sleep is really, really important. And I think it's so, so helpful for you to getting back to glucose, kind of defining what is normal so that people understand like knowledge is power. And this is really going to date me. But when I went through my nurse practitioner program and finished in 2000, which is a long time ago, we were looking at numbers under 140. So it tells you like we're getting better about identifying people that are at risk and what the normals are, but we've still got room to go. So when we're looking at other types of labs, and I know we kind of touched on this before we started recording, I had mentioned like fasting insulin as being one of those first kind of indicators. But what I found most interesting, Kara, was when I was listening to you on another podcast, when you were talking about hemoglobin A1C, can you share with our listeners? Because I think most of us are thinking, as long as my hemoglobin A1C and fasting insulin look good, I'm good. But you're suggesting, and I and this sounds completely reasonable, that isn't really the case. So what do people need to be concerned about? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, hemoglobin A1C, I think has in a mainstream audience gotten a perception as being the gold standard for if I have diabetes or not. And it is used Mm -hmm. to diagnose diabetes, but it has a lot of flaws. And Mm -hmm. I think just like you said, you know, 20 years ago, we were looking at a fasted glucose of 140 (laughs) and now we've adjusted that to hundred. I guarantee you in five, 10 years, that threshold is going to be at 90. I think eventually people will move away from A1C as well because of the evidence that's coming out about it. One thing that's important to know is what is it actually measuring? Mm -hmm. People think like this means diabetes or not, but really, you know, what it's doing is it's, it's measuring how much sugar is on your hemoglobin molecule. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, when we have blood sugar circulating in our system, it glycates proteins, it Mm -hmm. makes it sticky. And so hemoglobin molecule is on your red blood cell and an average red blood cell lives for 90 days. So what a hemoglobin A1C is telling us is how your average glucose values have looked over the last 90 days, three months. So inherently, you know, what it's measuring is, you know, slightly not that useful because it's telling us an average. An average is interesting, but it's missing any sort of variability. So you could be spiking to 200, which is really high and crashing to 60 and having reactive hypoglycemia and all types of trouble with your blood sugar levels. But the average could be right at a nice sweet spot and you wouldn't catch that at all in an A1C value. So that's really the first flaw in my view. And the research says that those spikes and that swings in your glucose values, the glycemic variability is actually the most important measures to be looking at to predict diabetes and insulin resistance and cardiovascular disease. So we want to look at those metrics. The other reason it's unreliable is because it's making the assumption that your red blood cell lives for 90 days, which for a lot of people is not actually true. So Anemia, which is extremely common, alters the lifespan of your red blood cells. Even high glucose values, if you have diabetes, alters the lifespan of your red blood cells. Uh, Blood loss, smoking, B12 deficiency, low-carb ketogenic diets, all of these can skew the lifespan of your red blood cells, which can either make it a false positive or a false negative. And they have researched this, and it's only about a 50% sensitivity to perfectly match with actual average glucose values. So that's not great, you know, and in general, you know, I say hemoglobin A1C is good for a proxy measure, you know, normal is below 5.7%. So if you come back with a 10% value, that's high, like no amount of skewed red blood cell life is compensating for that. So that tells us something. Um, Another is for personal tracking. You know, if you get it every year and it goes from seven to six to five and you haven't changed anything with, you know, anemia or any of these other, you know, contraindications, then you can at least track your progress. You know, it's going in a right direction. And that's where I see the use case of a hemoglobin A1C is for those two applications, like extreme outliers and then just personal trends tracking. But I have a lot of people who come to me and they're like, my A1C is 5.9% and I'm freaking out. And their CGM data is amazing. And I'm like, well, that tells us so much more. So I just think there's this misconception that hemoglobin A1C is a gold standard. So that's really the message I'm trying to get out is that it has its flaws. Well, I think that's really valuable because I know that you know, there are many of us that evolve, shift and change as clinicians. And then there are some people that aren't as good about that. And I know 
the one thing that I've been consistently telling my female patients is let's focus on that fasting insulin, because we know sometimes that is oftentimes the first thing that will start to shift as you are becoming insulin resistant. And interestingly enough, last time I had mine drawn, my, my nurse, my wife said, I think this might be the lowest insulin level I've ever seen. And so I was like, well, what does that mean? And so she said, well, I don't think I've ever seen it be a 2.1. And then I go on to find out that it's not that unusual. It's not as if I'm dead, but it just means (laughs) that there's more metabolic flexibility. And that's really what we're looking for. And a fasting insulin is not a weird or unusual test. It is a fairly common test, but you just have to have your healthcare provider order it. And where do you like to see your ranges for that? I get differing opinions. So I'm curious to know what your kind of standard is. Yeah. So for our customers that are really focused on like prevention, optimal metabolic health, um, and they don't have diabetes, I really like to see it two to five, which Mm -hmm. is kind of probably the tighter, more strict range. If, you know, we're working on progress, anything closer to that range is a win. Traditional reference range, I think is something crazy, like five to 20 or or something like that. So that's another caveat for those who don't know. I'm sure you've said this before that reference ranges are not always what you want to look at as well. That's just a standard deviation of whatever that lab uses in their population. And the average person is not that healthy. So we don't necessarily want to be in the average. Sometimes we want to be in a different optimal range. Uh, but two to five is what I look for. And we highly encourage, you know, we're not a clinic, so we're not ordering labs, but we highly encourage people to get a fasting insulin because it can tell us a lot. And it's very complementary to CGM data. And something that I think is useful with CGM data as well is it's really hard to get a postprandial insulin value mm-hmm. done. So fasting insulin is awesome, just like fasting glucose is awesome. But both of those values only tell us what's happening in a fasted state. So some people can have a low fasting insulin, a low fasting glucose, and then maybe you give them a glucose challenge and their postprandial insulin. So how much their body releases in a fed state is really abnormally high. And so that's hard to measure. Most labs are not going to do that. You can do like an oral glucose tolerance Mm -hmm. test with insulin, but it's just not very common. But if you do a glucose challenge, glucose tolerance test while wearing a CGM, that postprandial shape, you know, your glucose response to that meal is a very good proxy for how much postprandial insulin your body needed, especially that area under the curve. So how big that glucose response is, we're requiring insulin that whole time. So that's why I think it's very complementary to know both of those pieces of the puzzle. And so when we're talking about postprandial, if people aren't familiar with that terminology, it just means post meal. So for any of us that have been pregnant, you probably have been suggested, subjected <laughs> to the horrible glucose tolerance test. For anyone that doesn't like really sweet things, you're subjected to this, you know, load of, I don't even know how many grams of sugar. It's it is, 75 it's, grams, it's which is quite miserable, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> right. Miserable. And then you get your blood taken multiple times, but for purposes of kind of talking through with the group, what are some of the things that can influence that postprandial reading, whether or not it's done, you know, if you're sitting in a lab and you're having, you know, labs drawn at like one hour, two hour, four hours post consumption of this glucose load, what are some of the things that can influence that? Yeah. So like how high your response mm-hmm. goes versus if it's normal, you know, so a lot of that is an OGTT oral glucose tolerance mm-hmm. test is actually one of the better measures for assessing insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance. Um, it's not done that often unless you're pregnant. And so in the general population, unfortunately it's, it's kind of rare, mm-hmm. but this is one of the few moments that we can capture that maximum glucose value. Like how high does your glucose spike? That's not really captured in any other traditional Traditional mm-hmm. metric, you know, hemoglobin A1C is the average, fasting glucose is fasted. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're wearing the CGM, whether you're doing a 75 grams of glucose or if you're <laughs> eating, you know, eggs and sweet potatoes, we want to see how high does your glucose go? Because that's also an important metric, even though it's missed in traditional settings. So do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep 
challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Typically, if you're eating just kind of like normal food and you're not throwing a ton of glucose at your system, we want to see that maximum glucose value below 140 most of the time. So this is really about repetition. I like to make it clear that if you hit 140 once, it's your system isn't going to crumble and fall apart. It's about making sure that's not part of our daily routine. Mm -hmm. So your go-to breakfast isn't spiking you to 140. That's a problem. So we want to adjust those things. If you were doing a 75 gram glucose tolerance test, we don't want to see it ever spike above that 180 mark. So above that, in my view, is starting to be a problem. And both with a large glucose load or a smaller one that you might be having at a meal, we want to see that come back down to pre-meal glucose values fairly quickly. So usually within two to three hours. But if you look at data on those oral glucose tolerance tests and they you know, categorize it normal glucose tolerance, impaired or diabetic, the normal glucose tolerance, they peak in that first 30 minutes and then they're already coming down. And at mm-hmm. two hours, we're back down to like where we started. So that's a nice, healthy response. 
Whereas impaired, not quite diabetes, maybe prediabetes, early signs of insulin resistance, we spike more at like the hour mark, maybe mm -hmm. hour and a half and takes a little bit longer. And then with diabetes, we spike really high and we stay up high for a while. So mm -hmm. it's just like kind of amplified beyond that. We're looking for similar things in just your day-to-day -day meals as well. How quickly did you come back down? I'd rather see you kind of go up and then recover quickly. Mm -hmm. That shows me that your cells are sensitive to the signal from insulin. It got the signal and it knew what to do with it and it recovered glucose. That's a healthy metabolic system. Whereas, you know, if glucose is staying high for a really long time, especially from something not that crazy, you know, maybe a half a sweet potato or mm -hmm. one slice of bread, if your glucose is staying high for a long time, that's a red flag. You know, because I say that as a caveat, even healthy systems myself, if you do something that's a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of fat, like pizza or fried mm -hmm. food or creamy pasta, any of those things, even a healthy insulin sensitive person is going to see a long prolonged glucose response because you just overloaded your system with fat and carbs and fat slows down that digestion and your carbs are running through your system for a long time. So you see that you're not necessarily insulin resistant. You just probably didn't make the best food choice. And I think those macros are really important. I know even with fasting, we talk to patients about not breaking your fast with something that's carb heavy, that it's the time to have some light protein. Mm -hmm. It's the time to have some fermented foods. I mean, really kind of ensuring that you're not breaking your fast with just carbohydrates, because we know that that's going to, you know, secrete more insulin to try to keep the blood sugar low. So let's kind of pivot and talk a little bit about like what happens in our bodies when our blood sugar values are not where they should be. Obviously, if we look at the bulk of the population, we know that most people are not metabolically healthy. They're overweight, they're obese, they're, you know, I call it diabetes that, you know, so many of the population now is really metabolically not very healthy. So what happens to our bodies? What are the things that start to happen that obviously are not beneficial, but I think it's important for people to fully understand that before we kind of walk through the CGM and ways to kind of address this. Yeah, absolutely. And real quick note on the breaking the fast, I 100% agree. I cannot emphasize that enough. Um, this was something where it's like, oh, I had heard that's important. And then you see the data and you're like, it's really, really important. A daily fast and especially longer fast, mm -hmm. no carbs in that breaking the fast or else it's going to really reverse, you know, all the good you just did. But thinking about consequences of these abnormal glucose values, if you're not diabetic, you know, it's like, why should we care? And really the damage is done on both the microvasculature and the macrovasculature. So if we first kind of take like a zoomed in look at what's happening at the cellular level, um, a lot of what's going on is stress on the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So mitochondria in our cells, they don't get enough credits, they do a lot, and they are really the site for all of these metabolic reactions. So they're processing the energy you're putting in to try to make usable energy. And when we flood the system with a lot of glucose, which is our quick, immediate energy, it puts a lot of stress on the cell and on the mitochondria. And it's basically like putting the gas pedal all the way down. You know, it's gonna process that energy because that's its job, but it's having a lot of energy to process and it's kind of overwhelmed, which can produce free radicals and cause oxidative damage. So if you do this every once in a while, you know, you have more carbs than normal on Thanksgiving or your birthday, it's not a big deal. You know, we have systems in place to clean up that oxidative damage, clear out the free radicals. But if you're doing it every day, then we start to get in a cycle where the damage is more than the cleanup, right? So the short-term damage can't be fixed and reversed because we're damaging it again before the body has fixed it. So a lot of this has to go with like inflammation and oxidative mm -hmm. damage, which we all know, you know, inflammation is a serious problem, especially if it's on a chronic basis. And then those glucose spikes themselves, they are independently dangerous to our blood vessels. So we're meant to have a system that only has so much glucose in our bloodstream at any given point in time. Our bodies work really, really hard to keep that in a very specific range. And so when we spike that higher, like if you have a spike up to 180 or 200, then that can damage our endothelial cells of our 
blood vessels and cause an inflammatory reaction there as well. And that's where atherosclerosis, cardiovascular mm. disease really plays a part of diabetes because it's damaging the blood vessel and then it's causing some inflammation so we can heal it. And then that repeated abuse is a cycle that we don't want to enter. And that's where if we have this combination of oxidative stress, inflammation, damaged endothelial cells, we get into this feedback loop of damage. And you're also calling on a lot of insulin every time you are stimulating glucose. So it becomes this, you know, boy who cried wolf type of situation where you need insulin every once in a while, it's doing its job. Insulin's super, super important. But if you're calling on it every two hours, when you eat, you know, maybe a high carb meal five or six times a day, eventually your cells start to ignore that signal. And we can get into that feedback loop of insulin resistance at the cellular level, where it's starting to ignore the message so the body pumps out even more insulin to compensate, and eventually it's just not enough. And that's insulin resistance with inflammation, with cardiovascular disease. And that's, you know, all of that takes decades, which is why I'm really passionate about fixing it early and getting these devices on people, you know, when they feel healthy and they feel fine so that we can identify these are your daily trends. And this is where we need to adjust something so that we don't get stuck in that feedback loop that leads to diabetes and heart disease and kidney disease. So that's it in a nutshell, not to sound too scary, but it takes decades though. So we can fix that all if we catch it. I think it's important for people to have a sense of what happens when we don't, or we don't allow ourselves to be concerned about the choices that we're making. And I'm a huge advocate, as I know you are, about the preventative side of things. So when we're looking at it, I'm just curious, when we're looking at nutritional kind of mindsets and philosophies, are you seeing, I know there's lots of schools of thought right now, you know, you've got carnivore and keto and low carb and paleo and vegan. Are you seeing, and obviously it goes back to bioindividuality, but are you seeing that it's skewed one way or another, that there's a more of a nominal impact on glucose with particular kinds of diets, if people are eating a whole foods kind of nutrient dense diet, as opposed to a lot of process, because in every camp, maybe not carnivore, but in nearly every camp that I just talked about, there is junk food, there's vegan junk food, there's keto junk food, it's all there. So just because it has a, you know, a tag on it that says it's keto or carnivore, or what have you, doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy, but are you seeing certain nutritional philosophies that have a more negligible impact on blood glucose? Yeah. And, and you touched on the biggest rule, which is whole foods. It mm -hmm. has to be whole foods. You know, whole wheat flour is not a whole food. I want to emphasize like what is a whole food? It's as close to its natural state as possible. So that doesn't mean that cooking meat makes it not a whole food because we're processing it. So you can get into all these rabbit holes, mm -hmm. but you know, as close to what it came in as possible is the best thing. And really it is very personalized. Like you said, there truly is a no one size fits all. I've seen people be successful on all different types of diets and macronutrient ratios. But I would say in general, because we live in an insulin resistant society. So we have so many people with poor metabolic health and that dysregulated feedback loop mm -hmm. for a lot of people, the lower carbohydrate higher protein and higher healthy fats is going to be the best option. Mm -hmm. um, there's always nuances to that. And there's always exceptions. But I would say that's the most successful approach for most people, especially if you're showing signs of insulin resistance, or you're having, you know, really abnormal glucose values. And I really like to focus on a nutrient dense diet and a diet that promotes satiety. So mm -hmm. often that's really prioritizing protein, you know, fiber, non-starchy vegetables, if tolerated, that's a whole nother bandwagon caveat <laughs> we could go on. But so in general, I want to make sure you're getting all the nutrients you need. You're feeling satisfied. You're not eating around the clock, which I know is something that you definitely agree on. Mm -hmm. And if we're seeing signs of insulin resistance, we really do have to cut back on the carbohydrates. And there are some, you know, we all have personalized responses to eating whole food based carbohydrates, like how I respond to a sweet potato is not going to be how you respond mm -hmm. to a sweet potato. So it's also about finding the, if you do want to include carbohydrates in your diet, which you don't have to, it's totally fine if you don't, but if you do 
finding which ones work best for your body as well. So let's try some, see which ones you respond best to uniquely, and then find the right macro combination to eat them in, the right portion size, the right meal timing to make those work. So sometimes, you know, just tweaking the total amount a little bit is helpful. But in general, I would say like our modern recommendations for carbohydrates are way, way too high for almost everyone. You know, the standard recommendations up to 65% of your calories from carbohydrates. I've only ever seen that work in a handful of people and they're all athletes for Mm -hmm. sure. You know, it's not which this is the average recommendation for the average person. And it certainly doesn't work for the average person. So I would say most people do much better and closer to a like 20 to 30% of their calories from carbohydrates, give or take, you know, there's always the nuances, but. Well, I think it's interesting because I walk a lot of people through intermittent fasting as a strategy. And I think one of the things I quoted most recently was that the average American consumes 200 to 300 grams. That's average. That means you have a lot of people doing way more than that grams of carbs a day. And you think about just the beverages, like if, but nothing else, you just track sodas and, you know, fatty coffees or sweetened beverages, people can hit that really easily. And if you're drinking your calories, that's like one thing that people can omit like automatically and just start tracking what they're consuming. Cause I think there's just this disconnect. And I used to say this to my patients in cardiology. I'm like, just because you could eat this way at 18 doesn't mean that at 50, you can eat like you did at 18 years old. Like your body doesn't need as much calories. You have less lean muscle mass, unless you've been lifting and being really diligent. So let's pivot and talk a little bit about gender differences, because I know that there are definitely differences between men and women. And I think it's important to talk through that so that people can really make educated decisions moving forward. Like we can't pretend we're mini men. I always say this all the time. (laughs) Women are not mini men and we can't pretend that we are. Exactly. We're really not. It's totally different physiological systems. Mm -hmm. And we do have to acknowledge that it may be disappointing to hear. I know we all feel a little Mm -hmm. sad that we can't eat the same things or do the same things. Mm -hmm. But again, knowledge is power. You know, if you know this, then you can compensate appropriately. So on average, unfortunately, women are definitely less carbohydrate sensitive than men. This is probably for a variety of reasons. And especially, you know, as you age, that sensitivity difference between men and women only gets more pronounced. So this is likely due to differences in lean muscle mass. So muscle mass is where we can store glycogen, which is our storage space of glucose. More space means you have more place to dispose that incoming glucose. And it's also, so it's just this huge sink for glucose and which is why it's important for everyone to strength train. I'm a Mm -hmm. huge, huge proponent of that. It's a wonder for metabolic health and just moving your body so that you Mm -hmm. can utilize and stimulate some of that skeletal muscle. But on average, especially as we age, men tend to have more muscle mass than women. And so that's one particular reason. The other is, of course, differences in hormones. So testosterone in general improves glucose uptake. And there is a well-established correlation between like diabetes and low testosterone in men. So there's a strong connection there. Um, And in general, you know, some of the hormones that women have more of tend to make it harder to tolerate carbohydrates and, you know, a whole host of other things that go on there. So you can see this, especially in, you know, a menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. So if you're still menstruating, you're going to have different glucose values depending on what time of the month it is. And this is something I really had never thought about before I started diving into this and wearing my own CGMs. It's so apparent because any change in hormones is going to affect everything. You know, it's going to affect your glucose. It's going to affect your metabolic rate. So when we have major shifts in hormones each month, it's going to have an impact. So on average, and again, everyone kind of presents a little differently with this, but most women tend to have higher glucose values during the luteal phase. So Mm -hmm. weeks three and four before between ovulation and menstruation, glucose values on average are just higher. So we tend to 
put out more glucose, but we're more insulin insensitive at that time. So this is just something for women to know. And if you are going to wear CGM, wearing it for a whole month is really interesting. So you can see these differences. And for me, like this effect is very pronounced, especially like that one week beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I tend to be just much more careful about lower carbohydrates, um, especially like towards the second half of the day when we're all already naturally less insulin sensitive. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. And so this is something I can now compensate with, but you don't know unless you know someone told you or you have the information from your body, but a lot of women experience this effect. So it's, it's very, very common. And I guess similarly with, you know, menopause, after menopause, you are going to be less 
insulin sensitive. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a sharp decline in estrogen and that's an independent risk factor for insulin resistance and carb intolerance. So especially important that our postmenopausal women are really careful about how many carbohydrates they eat, what type of carbohydrates they're eating, when they're eating them, and that they know kind of where their thresholds are at. Because you're just in a state where it's going to be a little bit harder to process that glucose as energy. I think that's a really important distinction, just to mention that those that are still cycling that you know, there are going to be periods in the month where you're more or less insulin sensitive. And then for women, as they make that transition into menopause, that they have to be more mindful. It's something that I talk very openly about. And I remind people, and again, it's like, I feel like I always get, you know, normally when I'm at speaking events and I'm standing on a stage and I'm saying, I'm not really talking about grains and gluten. I'm talking about squash and sweet potato and you know, root vegetables and low glycemic berries, because we're such a carbohydrate focused culture, people feel, you know, there's this lack, like if you tell Mm -hmm. someone not to eat bread or not to eat cereal or not to eat lots of chips, they take it as like a personal friend. And really it's designed to say, Hey, I want you to pick the most nutrient dense option and just realize you probably can't get away with eating a whole sweet potato. It may be that you do half a cup of squash or half a cup of sweet potato, because your body is going to have to work that much harder to process that carbohydrate. Whereas you do much better with a higher protein diet, which helps ward off sarcopenia, which is muscle loss with aging. That unfortunately is a natural function of aging. And if you don't proactively lift weights, doing weight bearing exercise, walk, et cetera, you're going to be even more risk. And the less lean muscle mass you have, the less calories you burn. So it starts this kind of, Mm -hmm. it's almost like a ball rolling downhill that you really have to be much more cognizant as unsexy as that is to say, as we get older, as women, we just can't have as many carbs. And it doesn't mean that you don't ever enjoy a birthday cake or have a glass of wine, but you can't be doing it every night. And I'm not sure if you see this with your patients, but One of the things I see a lot of women in their forties and beyond doing, and especially with COVID, because we have these like truly unprecedented times, none of us have lived through a pandemic and there's just stress and demands on everyone that is unusual for them. You can't have a couple glasses of wine every night. I mean, that is like a surefire way to dysregulate your blood sugar, to raise cortisol, to dysregulate melatonin. So we're talking about all these different hormones. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you see that as well with your clients and your patients that they start making these associations of like, oh, I really can't do X, Y, or Z anymore. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of people end up saying, you know, I came here to try the CGM to learn about my glucose or see how things are going. And they leave as it's more of this was an accountability tool for me. And this is a behavior change driver. We live in a society and just as humans that we love immediate gratification, immediate feedback, right? Our brains are hardwired for that. And unfortunately, a lot of health habits that we want people to be doing and we need for good health don't involve immediate gratification. You know, if I don't have that glass of wine tonight, or if I skip that bread tonight, I'm not really going to see the benefit for maybe like 30 years. That's a big delay. (laughs) You know, it's not very motivating and you're not sure if you're doing the right thing. And if you do have the wine and if you do have the sweets every single night, you're not really going to see the consequence either. The only thing you're getting is the immediate reward of it being satisfying. So I think the CGM and immediate data just coming right at you can help bridge that time gap. So you can see the consequence or the benefit of the decision you made right now, rather than 20 years from now. And that's exactly what our brains want to see in order for something to truly be intrinsically motivating. Mm -hmm. And in order to stick to a lifestyle plan for the rest of forever, you know, we always switch things up. We're always changing what's working, but we want to stick to it long-term. And in order to do that, it has to be intrinsically motivating. You know, I can't tell you what to do and suddenly you're going to be motivated to do that. You have to see it and feel it and believe it. And I think the data is really helpful to do that because you can see, you know, my glucose was way higher the next day when I had two glasses of wine. And that's very common. Like with the effect of alcohol, typically what happens is you see a glucose dip in the moment because your body's prioritizing metabolizing the alcohol. It's like, this is my first priority. So it's like, I'm going to worry about glucose later. And then the next day, 
fasting glucose levels are much higher and postprandial your meal responses at your glucose values are much higher as well because you just kind of interfered with the liver's normal mm-hmm. flow. So you see those effects and we have dietitians on staff to help point out those effects so that you can see like, did you make this connection and kind of help put it together so that it is intrinsically motivating and you can stick to something long-term because that's really my goal. You know, you don't have to wear CGM for the rest of your life, but those insights will hopefully build a motivating plan that you can stick to. The last thing we ever want anyone to do is to have the, you know, fad on and off, try this thing for three months, stop, and then kind of gain weight, cycle weight. That's not good long-term. Like that makes it harder to have a lasting successful plan if we're always switching things. I think it's very good to try things, but we have to stick with things over the long-term in order to see the long-term benefits. Absolutely. I have to totally agree with you. Now, One thing we didn't touch on is how different types of exercise, and this is always a question in my monthly group, we're all focused on exercise the month Mm -hmm. of December. How does exercise impact positively or negatively our blood sugar values? Yeah. So overall, like all exercise is positive. It's super, super important. I, you can't have perfect health without also exercising. But in the moments, your glucose may spike during exercise, and that could be completely normal. So it's really about how much energy you're demanding from your exercise. If you're in a fasted state, and you're doing HIIT training, or you're doing, you know, heavy weightlifting, you're probably going to see a glucose spike just because the energy available circulating is not enough to power that quick intense workout. So your body will stimulate some glucose for you to use, but it's different than a food spike because you're using it right away. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fueling your workout. It's not just extra energy you put into your body. So don't be afraid. If you see a glucose spike during exercise, that's totally normal, but after exercise and really sometimes for up to 48 hours, we can see improved insulin sensitivity, especially strength training, but really any type of exercise has shown to be helpful for this. So not just improving insulin sensitivity, which helps require less insulin and to get your glucose down. So we're stimulating less insulin and getting glucose down faster, but it also can clear out some of that glycogen in your skeletal muscles and make sure you have more room to put some in if you are eating carbohydrates and it can increase your mitochondria. So it makes it easier to produce energy and process all that glucose coming in. Really the list could go on and on of the benefits of exercise. And so I'm a proponent of strength training, but I also say, you know, do whatever you enjoy doing because I want you to be doing it regularly and whatever you can stick to on a regular basis is definitely more beneficial than if you hate strength training and you're forcing yourself to do it and you're not going to stick with it. So any type of exercise helps and also making sure you're not sedentary. So We don't want to work out for one hour of the day and then sit the rest of the day, which, you know, that's probably my Achilles heel because I just work a lot and so I sit on my computer a lot. So I totally understand how easy it can be to just be sedentary and go to the gym for one hour and think that's enough. But through the CGM data and through the research, it's very obvious that you also have to move and stimulate your muscles throughout the day. That can be a quick 10 minute walk, you know, get up and just, yeah, I have a kettlebell by my desk to help remind myself of that, but just making sure you're moving throughout the day can also really improve glucose values. Um, especially a quick walk after a meal, you know, if you know, your glucose is kind of rising, one of the best ways to help bring it down quickly is just to go on a quick walk. It doesn't have to be a run. It doesn't have to be a heavy workout. It can be 15 minutes stroll around the neighborhood and it makes a very meaningful impact. I was about to say, that's like one of my favorite things to suggest. Like it doesn't even matter if it's five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30, take your dogs out, get Mm -hmm. some connection with nature. I know that you're in a warmer part of the country, but one of the things that has been beneficial during COVID is I've just been doing more walks with my dogs in my neighborhood. And I've actually grown to really appreciate it because much like to your point, for those of us that are at home working, you get in this habit of, oh, I'll just get one more thing done. But really what you need to do mm-hmm. is stop, get up, move your body, then come back. And then I always feel like that, you know, makes whatever task I have to get done that much easier. Now, before we kind of end things today, I want to make sure we touch on two more things. 
obviously intermittent fasting is a strategy that I utilize myself. And ironically enough, I actually had a, a longer fast than what I normally do earlier this week in preparation for a colonoscopy. I had to go 40 hours and I was so excited because I was like, okay, <laughs> this is the first time I've done a fast that long in a long time. But I then had to take medication to prep me for the colonoscopy, which is very sugary. And all I could think of was it's going to take days <laughs> for my body to process <laughs> the amount of glucose I just ingested. In fact, I told my gastroenterologist, they have to come up with better options for people. Yeah. But let's talk about the impact of fasting and blood sugar for like the, a healthy average person. You know, What are some of the benefits? What are some of the things that you see? Because I think there's always this concern for people the fear is always if I don't eat, my blood sugar is going to drop, which I just have to remind them that our body has all sorts of amazing emergency backup systems to ensure with homeostasis that doesn't happen. You know, you mentioned glycogen stores and things like that that will help maintain that blood sugar, but let's talk about the impact of fasting and blood sugar. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. A lot of people are afraid of becoming hypoglycemic if they fast. And I'll tell you that is very, very uncommon, especially mm -hmm. in non-diabetics. So it's extremely rare. We have lots of systems in place to make sure that doesn't mm -hmm. happen. And if you are wearing a CGM and you're a little nervous to fast, it's the greatest time <laughs> to try it because we know what's going to happen. And you also have, you know, support there through our team, but fasting is one of our core pillars. So we talk about how nutrition fasting, exercise, and stress. So I lumped mm -hmm. stress and sleep and anything that's a stressor in one category. Those are kind of like the four legs of a chair. If we want good metabolic health, we have to do all of those. Mm -hmm. So I'm completely in agreement with you that fasting is super important. So as general golden rules for most people, because again, fasting is personalized, just like nutrition. I really like to emphasize at least 14 hours of fasting a day. That's like a bare minimum for everyone, even my diabetics, they're 14 hours and really aim for at least three hours of fasting before bed. Uh, we are universally less insulin sensitive in the evenings than during the daytime. This is everybody, you know, everyone has this effect. So earlier dinners align our eating with our circadian rhythm is a good golden rule. So some people that three hours before bed is enough time. And for others, they really don't see those overnight glucose values and those morning fasting values come down unless it's five or six hours before mm -hmm. bed. So we might have to move that, you know, further up, but three hours minimum. And then we just want to avoid grazing. So I really want people to be conscious about how much time is between their meals. This is personalized because you know, everyone's a little different, but make sure you feel satiated after a meal so that you can go, you know, in between meals without having to snack all day. Because if we're grazing all day, and we're constantly having snacks between meals, then we're always stimulating insulin, we don't want to start that cycle, mm -hmm. that feedback loop where we're constantly stimulating insulin. So those are my, you know, core rules for the general person. And from there, we can really you know, take it where we want to take it. So there's the caveat of, you know, the people that fasting is not applicable for, I'm sure you've talked about this mm -hmm. before. So pregnancy, if you're underweight, but again, that's not most people. And then beyond that, really, you know, one thing that I will note is this was a disconnect from my traditional teaching. And when mm -hmm. I started to see lots of people's data was that if you are insulin resistant or you already at the stage of maybe a diabetes diagnosis. Fasting is one of the most useful tools we can lean on to get you back down to normal. So for an everyday healthy person, you know, general 14 or 16 hours of fasting a day is, is probably just a good healthy practice. But for those insulin resistant folks, we can decrease their glucose spikes by altering diet. We can lower their glycemic variability by altering diet, but we can never get your average glucose values and your fasting glucose values down to optimal ranges without leaning on fasting heavily because your liver has really dysregulated that ability to maintain good glucose values in a fasted state. So no matter what we're doing diet wise, we can't fix that unless we force the body to go without food for a little while. So we have found, you know, kind of longer fast for the insulin resistant people to be just an amazing tool of finally bringing those fasted glucose values down. So we first want to address diets and make sure, you know, it's, we've got the spikes down and that they're not 
and any medications where they might be hypoglycemic. But those longer fasts have just been amazing for that category of people. Well, this has been so, so valuable. I'm so grateful for your time. I mean, there is little to no one that I've ever had the opportunity of working with who isn't struggling with some degree of blood sugar variability or just really not getting their macros mm-hmm. tuned in. They're eating too frequently. Their sleep is off. Their stress management's not dialed in. How can people connect with you? Because I'm sure there are people that are listening, that are curious, that may not be diabetic. Obviously, I myself am super interested in like the preventative aspects of CGMs. How can people connect with you and get more information? Yeah. So, you know, I work at NutriSense. So and our website, NutriSense.io is where you would sign up for a CGM. Um, And every new customer gets a personalized one-on-one dietitian they can also chat with through the app, which, you know, I think is really helpful to identify those trouble areas and figure out what exactly is going on. Um, So that's the best place to try it out. We're also putting out a ton of information about glucose and nutrition and metabolic health on our Instagram, NutriSense.io. And then me personally, most active on Twitter at Kara Collier but most of my social media goes through the NutriSense account. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so glad to have connected. And I know this information will be super valuable for my followers. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.